Teaching meditation can be a deeply rewarding experience. Help others improve their mental and emotional well-being, reduce stress, improve focus, increase self-awareness and self-regulation, all while deepening your own practice and understanding. Join acclaimed author, Buddhist teacher, and Emmy Award-winning musician David Nickturn on Tuesday, May 28th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time for a free online discussion on teaching meditation in Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash be here now for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn on May 28th. I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ram Dass's Love Server Member Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ram Dass, Krishna Das, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more, the Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to the Metta Hour Podcast with Sharon Salzberg, where Buddhist wisdom meets everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Be Here Now Network. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, visit www.beherenownetwork.com slash Sharon. Enjoy listening. Hi, I'm Sharon Salzberg, and I'm speaking today with Elisha Goldstein. Elisha is the co-founder of the Center for Mindful Living in West Los Angeles and creator of a number of programs, including the six-month mentorship program, A Course in Mindful Living. He's a psychologist, a speaker, and an author. He synthesized traditional psychotherapy with a progressive integration of mindfulness and has published numerous articles and blogs. His books include Uncovering Happiness, the Now Effect, and he's the co-author of a mindfulness-based stress reduction workbook. Welcome to the podcast. Oh, it's so great to be here with you, Sharon. It's really great to talk to you. We've 
uh, tried this several times, and each time <laughs> something went wrong. So this was like this is the new beginning of like, day has come a whole new phase. It's so great. So maybe we can we can start um, by talking a little bit about how you came to the practice of mindfulness, the practice of meditation. You know, it was, it was a long time coming for me, um, but uh, you know, I think I came to this in the in the similar way that a lot of people come to it. Uh, really out of my own kind of confusion and suffering at the time. Um, I was, this was, this was in my, my early 20s, and I was, um, you know, uh, I was always, as I always put it, I was working hard and playing a whole lot harder. Mm. Um, I was in the corporate world, and um, I was actually quite successful being in sales and managing sales teams, but I was, uh, I was really kind of parting um, to an extent of, like, massive abuse. And uh, I, would, I would separate myself from my friends and my family, not taking phone calls, like really all, a lot of the classic signs. And meanwhile, at the same time, I was reading a lot of Eastern books and I was, I was reading a lot about this stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's something about me pulling me, but I wasn't really practicing anything. Um, and uh, it wasn't until I went away on a, uh, a month-long retreat that I was introduced to the, even the concept of mindfulness as an experience more, but more informally through, um, you know, classically in some way through eating an orange. <laughs> and this guy, uh, this guy came up to me. He said, "Well, why don't you just try this out?" And I was kind of stressed. And and he's, um, you know, he basically kind of brought me through a mindful eating exercise. And I and and I was some random guy came up. To uh, you. Well, it was it was actually one of the, he was one of the um, guides in this program. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And so uh, and you know, and I I started kind of seeing things I didn't see before. The the zest of the orange kind of coming off the membranes in there, and I was kind of taking it seriously, but like you know, a little doubt in the back of my head. And and after I was after I put it in my mouth for the first time and began to chew on it, I mean, it was I had never experienced eating anything like that in my life. And then he he said he asked me what I'm noticing and how I'm feeling, and and I felt like for the first time in a long time really relaxed and at ease and. Um, and he's like, well, what would it be like to have more of this in your life? And, mm. and, um, and it was, it was pretty uh, powerful. And so interestingly enough, and actually probably a highly common experience is that after I left this place and went back to my life back in San Francisco, went back to my job, went back to all of this, I just fell back into my old patterns. And, um, and you know, that, that really taught me something later on in reflection, which was, uh, how important our environment and community is to uh, in supporting us and motivating us and inspiring the changes we want to make in our lives. But I inevitably still, a seed was planted and an experience was planted, and um, I began to become more and more interested in it and inevitably left the corporate world and went to a school that incorporated mindfulness into mm-hmm. its curriculum, um, a doctoral program that doesn't exist in the name that um, it was when I went there, but uh, and then I got became more exposed to the experience of it, um, and inevitably became trained uh, under uh, Bob Stahl in the Bay Area and mindfulness-based stress reduction. So I came to it in somewhat of a secular way, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and um, you know kind of took off from there. When did you become a psychotherapist? When was the two thousand six? I was. Um, uh, graduated and then shortly after that licensed mm-hmm. and um, and then you know I really sort of during during my whole program and during my pre-doctoral training and stuff like that I was at Kaiser and I was bringing mindfulness into their uh, into the, into groups there and kind of leading groups there and um, and so that the in the marriage of mindfulness and psychotherapy became quite natural to me 
and um, and so that's where that's where I started kind of kind of leading that charge. It's so interesting to me because as as you were speaking, I was thinking, oh, um, maybe yeah, the reason I asked how long you've been a psychotherapist is because maybe you don't uh, feel familiar with kind of the great divide, you know, that mm-hmm. existed between those worlds. Like I was teaching somewhere, and the last question was. Uh, somebody said, I'm a psychotherapist in Boston, and the pressure to bring mindfulness into my practice is so strong. And I was practically rolling on the floor laughing. I said, you feel pressure? Uh-huh, right. I mean, it used to be like really different than that, you know? And <clears throat> the next day, I happened to be at a meeting in New York City, and there were two psychiatrists present at the meeting, and I brought that up, and they both said, oh, yeah, you know, that used to be like a secret. You wouldn't disclose that. That was... You know, that was, if you had a practice, that was like unprofessional. So I, it's so remarkable to hear you speak. Well, well, let, let me just give you kind of a historical timeline here that, that actually when I entered the field, I was kind of on the cusp there because when I entered, the, entered my graduate program in 2002, mindfulness was not really in any uh, graduate curriculum. And so I specifically said the only, in fact, any kind of spiritual work was, was still a, a high no-no mm-hmm. graduate curriculum. The only actual curriculum that had that type of work in it were certain Christian uh, graduate schools. And mm-hmm. they, for, for some reason, that was an okay, it was okay to, to mix Christianity and um, psychotherapy mm-hmm. and still be APA, uh, American Psychological Association accredited. But um, but any anything else was not okay, and it was around, I'd say somewhere in the middle of my um, my work and my graduate school, maybe even 2005 five or six, maybe it was towards the end, that you started to see some of the more of the research starting to kind of pervade um, the schools, and and more professors starting to kind of want to bring this in, and then after I had graduated and become licensed, you started to see it a whole lot more, UCLA, Harvard. You know, all these places started integrating mindfulness into their curriculums and wanting to, and started kind of pervade, um, becoming more pervasive in the field. That's amazing. You know, um, so you you practice, you offer both traditional psychotherapy and mindfulness techniques. Do you uh, other people for whom you feel mindfulness in a formal sense is not that appropriate? Or um, I would imagine there's some amount of mindfulness. Otherwise, how would you know what you're feeling? <laughs> You know that's essential. Yeah, for some, for some mindfulness is an implicit experience. Yeah, but uh, yeah, most people come to me at this point because you know they they know that I that's they, what they, do. they want that integrated into their into their therapy and um, you know. But, but prior to that, you know, it wasn't necessarily the case. But I, I you know I just want to kind of name that before mindfulness was a thing in psychotherapy, I mean, there was, there's plenty of therapies out there, gestalt therapy, um, mm-hmm. narrative therapy, that's a little bit more reflective. Uh, you know, there's therapies that were more experiential. Um, and, you know, in the fields before it was, before, you know, during the Great Divide, you know, as you say it, um, the fields of humanistic psychotherapy and, and, and psychology and transpersonal psychology, these were all um, fringe, I guess, uh, at the time, but you know, integrating mm-hmm. you know, this type of work into their practice. Do you think it actually changes the goal of the of the psychotherapy? I think the goal of psychotherapy has always been healing. Uh-huh. Um, uh, what I do think it does, which is which is different to me, is it kind of gives. You know, it, it, as a, as a therapist, you have to meet someone where they're at. Mm-hmm. Not everyone's coming in to want to do practice. Mm-hmm. 
um, you know, some 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 it's more um, uh, conceptually oriented, like you know, mindfulness having its uh, lineage from Buddhist psychology. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you you there's there's some fundamentals around understanding that you know at the core, you know, hey, there's there's stress and pain in life. You know, that's just uh, you know part of it. And you know what we can learn to do is we can learn to engage it in particular ways that um, you know relieve that suffering. You know, mm-hmm. And uh, and so then we can start to incorporate practices, which to me what happens is, and the benefit of integrating into psychotherapy, if, if somebody's open to that, is that now you have um, actual practices that can experientially give someone a perceived sense of control, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, which is associated and correlated in the research with feeling well and happy and resilient. And, um, and then also what you're doing is you're starting to teach people to attend to themselves and their experience is that you're they're sending themselves the implicit message that I care enough about myself mm-hmm. to pay attention to myself. So what we practice and repeat, I mean, we're made of habits, and so what we practice and repeat starts to become more automatic. And so if we're practicing and repeating intentionally, attending to ourselves in a gentle way and being able to hold what's there, the difficult things that are there, the wonderful things that are there, we inevitably increase our implicit sense of self-worth, which is also associated with feeling well and happy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and to have them understand the concept that those good feelings and joyful feelings and wonderful feelings are also impermanent mm-hmm. um, creates a sense of perspective that I can learn and practice being grateful for the good moments in life and graceful during the inevitable difficult moments of life. And I can, I, I know a way to do that. That's fantastic. I was gonna, you've anticipated my next question, which was about self-worth. Um, so, uh, you know, when I, when I try to describe what mindfulness is or try to define it, sometimes I, I take the path of saying mindfulness is a faculty of awareness or, or an aspect of awareness that teaches us a different relationship to pleasure, pain, and neutrality because certainly our relationship to pleasure can be kind of distorted. Instead of the gratitude which you just spoke about, we might be dismissive. It's not good enough. It's not the right kind. It's not as much as they have. Or we might be very distracted and not even take it in. And our relationship to pain you know, tends to be so conditioned by so many other factors and, and can be so... Uh, weird and damaging. You know, I should have been able to stay in control. This shouldn't have happened. Um, I'm the only one or whatever. And even uh, as is taught in the Buddhist psychology, our relationship to neutrality, you know, those experiences that are repetitive or routine or not very strikingly pleasant or unpleasant, those can be kind of weird too. You know, we go to sleep or we numb out. We wait for something more exciting to happen. And so by learning mindfulness, we learn how to undo those patterns and have more relationship of gratitude and compassion and, and presence. And uh, the connection between that and self-worth is actually fascinating. Yeah, you know, it reminds me of what you're talking about, and then we'll talk about the self-worth piece, but the, um, there's a quote that I, often, that I often state from a, a rabbi and philosopher, you might have heard of him, Abraham Joshua Heschel, mm-hmm. and he uh, you know, marched with Martin Luther King, a big peace activist, and he, um, and he said... And I remember reading, you know, reading his book and getting really a number of books and getting really engrossed in them. But the, um, but he said, life is routine. That's the neutrality. Life is routine, and routine is resistance to wonder. Mm. 
And so it's very true. You know, we're, we're wired towards routine um, in a lot of ways to make them, when you practice and repeat something, become a habit, becomes more routine, and we lose sight of it, and it's just like whatever. And then, um, and then we're not, and if we're seeking pleasure, we'll, we'll, we'll go off into, you know, um, something else, you know, that might be more interesting. I mean, we are addicted to stimulation at this point, or most of us are anyway, I'll say. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, how do we kind of get back in touch with the wonders of everyday life, and what can that do to support resiliency you know, in our lives is, a, is just an interesting question. Um, but, but anyway, to go back to your, your question of self-worth, um, if I can remember it. Uh, well, you know, it's like um, most people don't necessarily make the association, although I think it's absolutely the correct association between, as you said, attending to yourself. The simple act of paying attention to yourself is, is like nurturing yourself in some ways, giving yourself a gift, and it builds the sense of, of self-worth. Most people don't connect mindfulness practice per se with um, the growth of self-worth. Yeah, it's the, it's the practice of really loving yourself and being aware of, um, you know, and, and, and doing it in a way that you, uh, you're worth attending to. And, um, you know, I'll never forget, you know, for me, I, it, it was, you know, that, that, that history I had with, you know, just a, a massive drug abuse, mm. um, you know, I was obviously not caring about myself or, at all. And in fact, you know, you know, damaging, hurting myself. And, and this, this idea that I'm worthy enough, I'm worth enough to begin to care for myself and love myself, um, you know, and I have a practice in order to do that uh, is, is really, really powerful. And that, that wasn't where it ended, actually. I mean, for me, and for many people listening, like, I, I didn't even realize this, but I also had this underlying struggle with anxiety mm-hmm. um, that was there. And one night in my early 20s, I woke up with a panic attack. I had no idea what it was. Mm. And I, um, I drove myself to the hospital in the middle of the night. Mm. And uh, I'll never forget when I get to the hospital, and they're like, oh, okay, hey, can you fill out this paperwork? And I'm like, I'm dying. You know, <laughs> I <fill> paperwork? <laughs> but yeah. uh, I came to understand that it was a panic attack. And it was, what's fascinating about that was, that wasn't where it ended, and it, re- it reminds me of this other underlying anxiety that I struggled with, which, which, which was around insomnia in my early 20s, a real difficult time falling asleep. And my mom's a psychologist, and she used to try and give me some practices and stuff like that, and they were helpful a little bit, but not much more relaxation practices. And it wasn't until I really kind of got deeper into my own practice that when the insomnia would come, um, I had complete confidence that if I just allowed myself to be present with what was there, the feeling, the sensation, my breath, that inevitably this would come and go. Mm. And I just knew that at a deep level through my experience. And all of a sudden I had this great sense of self-confidence that no matter what came my way, I was going to be okay. And um, that nipped the anxiety in the bud. Wow, that's incredible. I mean, it's also very intuitive, you know, uh, to honor that experience. Even if we've had the experience, we could think, well, that was a fluke, you know. Or... Yeah, and I think I think what it comes down to is, again, the experience of it, of understanding, I mean, ultimately with, with mindfulness, you, you do really, you, you're, you're taught this, right? You, you know, you know from your background and everyone mm-hmm. here who's listening, you know, this idea that like life is impermanent, the natural love life is that, you know, everything's impermanent except mm-hmm. that thought, right? And so, but, but to have the deep experience of that is a different story. And so just the practice of mindfulness, of watching your breath, 
of being aware of your body and just being aware of the sensations or just being aware of having an open awareness and just being aware of all that's here and just, just the deep experience of all things coming and going can have a real powerful impact on not getting hooked as much by the natural hooks that, when we're talking about psychotherapy, that, that hook us into states of anxiety or depressed mood or hook us into um, activating our trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that, that sense of, of, of having an implicit ability to become unhooked, mm-hmm. uh, you know, gives you the stability of mind to um, be more confident and to uh, attend to what matters to you in your life. So inevitably you become more effective in the things that you want to do and the life you want to live and, um, and are a whole lot more forgiving to yourself when, when you're not. <laughs> Well, I think you. Um, I really want to uh, applaud yours. The association you're making between, uh, well, mindfulness and insight for one thing, and mindfulness and uh, this idea of self worth, because I think a lot of people uh, maybe try try it once or something, and uh, or they they have some reading acquaintance with uh, concepts like mindfulness, and and they think, oh, you know everything I uncover will be like miserable, some other, you know, terrible facet of my being. And and I'll just discover all these, uh, they probably wouldn't use the word defilement, which is a very classical term, but uh, I'll just discover all these flaws. And, um, you know, and, and uh, the fact that we're almost kind of co-cultivating compassion for ourselves at the same time as the awareness isn't that obvious, and and yet it's it's very much the case, and it's because of it. It's be, and you know this is the, and this is the thing that we hear a lot too. But it's 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 really absolutely true. It's because of our pain that we have the ability and opportunity to um, to uh, to build these strengths that inevitably lead to greater resilience and lead to a greater sense of self worth. Uh, that's there. Um, you know, the, it's uh, there, there's a classic story. I'm sure you've heard it, where there was a bunch of monks on the train, and and um, and the train the train stopped, and the door got ripped open, and these two thugs came and they ripped them outside the train, and they started kind of beating up one of the monks, and the other ones were sitting there with their mouths open, and and um, after the thugs left, because there was really nothing to take, right? They um, they looked at the monk and said, "You're so lucky." Mm. <laughs> that's an extreme yeah an extreme that is extreme. Yeah, very extreme story right but the but it's the point the point being that like wow you really got to work with the, the difficulty that's yeah. there i'll never forget the first re- 10 day silent retreat i went on which was a, a goenka retreat and and um and the idea of the sits of determination where you have to sit for an hour yeah. and you can't move and so you do have pain, but the intention there is to be aware of it. So you 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 become kind of inoculated to a little bit. You can also be aware that this this stuff comes and goes and shifts and changes. And I remember coming off the retreat and telling people like, "Whoa, you know, you should really try watching the cramp in your foot." Like, <laughs> <laughs> oh, you were one of those people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just try watching this. Well, it's really going to be powerful for you. You're going to gain a lot of strength from it. <laughs> anyway, no, you don't. Not everyone's listening has to try and do that. No, 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 you don't. <laughs> I mean, Goenka was my first teacher as well. So. Yeah. Um, well, one of the things that, uh, you know, within the Buddhist context that was kind of striking to me is that uh, suffering is not the point. Like, suffering is not redemptive. It's developing a different relationship to suffering uh-huh, right. that is transforming. And that's something people um, often don't understand as well, you know, that uh, 
it's like suffering itself is not ennobling. And so sometimes people do go to an extreme yeah. and, and they think that's the breakthrough, but it's really not. It's the awareness and the love and the balance we learn to bring to any experience at all. That's the breakthrough. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. But you need, you need that. Yeah. You, you need that in order to, to realize that, but you also need skills and scaffolding. And I think that's where the teaching, you know, comes in. So there's a real power to me. There's a real power behind having a, a mentor mm-hmm. um, or a teacher of some kind um, that you can uh, go to and talk to. And there's all, and this is very classic, right? But I think in our secular culture, which which is the one really I grew I grew up in, yeah. as far as mindfulness is concerned, um, that's just not really that. Um, that's not really part of the implicit structure that people are. Kind mm-hmm. of taught with mm-hmm. that, that, hey, it would be really valuable for you to have someone that can help be a guide for you, like a real person, and and then and then also the fact that there's other people doing this and you're not alone in it, yeah. and there's yeah. other people who have kind of done it that can also, in some ways, just just being a part of a community can um, can be inspiring to you, and you can learn from them, and you don't have to go this alone. In fact, it's really it's actually quite difficult to do it alone. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and so I, I oftentimes, it, 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 the, it the whole reason I, I started this six month online, the one that you mentioned before the six month mm-hmm. online mentorship program was to give people what I saw missing in a lot of the mindfulness programs that are out there today was this, was that people don't have enough time to develop the practice. So it becomes kind of implicit for them mm-hmm. because habits that all the habit research out there shows that if you want to like, uh, if you want to develop the habit, let's say, of drinking a cup of water in the morning, um, you can do that in 21 days. Mm. But if you want to do a more complex habit, like let's say a meditation practice mm. or learning how to exercise or eat, you know, eat in a particular way or something like that, you need more time, something more like six months or maybe a year for some people. And so, um, but the question is, in order to develop a habit, you need commitment. And so, you know, in psychotherapy or even in the field of mindfulness, I would say there's a word that's been out there that's been thrown out there quite a bit, which is around intention. Like mm-hmm. set your intentions. Actually, it's a word that's been out there for ever, right? Which is a powerful, but intentions doesn't talk about commitment. And you need commitment to or do a habit, but commitment is really hard. Mm-hmm. And so what's gonna what do we need in order to develop commitment? We need other human beings that are going to support us and inspire us, play off our brains, implicit decision-making, when we see them or think about them, we're like, yep, I want to do this um, type of thing, to be able to do something repeatedly over time so it becomes more of a habit, so we ingrain all the benefits of it. And, um, and then that's why you need time. So you know, for me, I wanted to surround people with um, uh, something that they can do over a longer period of time, and they can make relationships with other people mm-hmm. over that period of time because most of our relationships come from school or they come from work because we're having experiences with people over time. So when it comes to mindfulness, mm-hmm. we also need to be part of a community. Well, let me just say, we don't need to be. You, you can certainly get a lot, a lot of benefits from you know apps and you mm-hmm. know, dropping mm-hmm. into those meditation studios and stuff like that. And, and uh, But but to to make relate to be part of something where you're having experiences with other people over a longer period of time, you're just more likely to make relationships with them, mm-hmm. and those people become natural inspirations for you implicitly, uh, and will will make this a whole lot easier for you to actually engage in the practice. That's going to reap you all the benefits that um, that people oftentimes come to the practice for initially. It's the doorway for them. 
uh, and so much more beyond that. That's so interesting. I was at an event last night in New York City, um, and Richie Davidson happened to be there, who's a an old friend who's a neuroscientist at the University of Wisconsin at Madison. And he and I just got into a conversation about the study of habit and how for so many people who maybe even do a retreat or have a kind of meditation experience, the hardest thing of all is having a regular practice, is maintaining it and then integrating it into their lives. And and how few teachers, uh, Asian or Western, uh, would look at just the science of of how a habit is created Mm -hmm. as an aid to understanding that. So it's kind of amazing to hear you talk about it, you know, so soon after. It's important. I think it's the next, to me, it's the next evolution of our, I mean, you know, I'm just, all I'm doing is looking at a combination of the current science around habits with mm-hmm. all of the world's wisdom traditions and what they've taught us over thousands of years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and, and it's just true. We just, it's just right there that there's a reality around, this, the current science shows, there's a reality around emotional and behavioral contagion. Right, there was a study that that came out um, over well over a decade ago by Nicholas Christakis and James Fowler, where they and you've heard of this study probably, where they they um, analyzed the data from a heart a longitudinal heart disease study called the Framingham study, and they found and this came out in the New York Times initially. Um, they they found that uh, you know that after doing that, they found that obesity is contagious up to three degrees. But mm-hmm. then they found that they did the same thing for loneliness and happiness, and um, and then, so then there's a, a ton of other research came out around behavioral contagion and emotional contagion, which basically said, and then, of course, there was the, the study by um, uh, Damasio and some others that was talking about the mirror neurons. And, um, but the, the idea that the people we surround ourselves with and make frequent contact with influence our brain's implicit decision-making. And so if... If you want to make, let's say, as an example, mindfulness practice easier for you, um, in other words, like give your give your auto give the autopilot within you mm-hmm. um, uh, a leg up, you know, in it, then you want to make more contact with people who are doing the thing you're wanting to do, and uh, you know, so the whole monkey see monkey do thing. There's a there's sort of a in some ways a science around it, and um, and you know that takes. That takes a moment of reflection to say, well, okay, how do I do that? How do mm-hmm. I make more contact mm-hmm. with those people? Uh, and I oftentimes bring people through a, an exercise where I'll basically um, ask them to do an audit of their social circles, and uh, and then kind of and this may sound cold, but you know, mm-hmm. just to kind of look at who are you making most who are you making most frequent contact with, um, and then just rate those people. And again, this doesn't mean they're good or bad people or mm-hmm. anything like that. They might be great friends. Um, and rate them at, on a scale of one to ten, from least inspiring to most inspiring. Mm-hmm. So this goes beyond like nourishing and depleting. But I just mean like, are they inspiring you to do this thing that you're wanting to do, mm-hmm. meditation practice? And um, and then if there's people on the fringe out there that are inspiring but you don't have contact with, then the question is, well, how can you mm-hmm. make more contact with those people? Because you want to create memories in your mind, your short term, you want to create short term memories of contact with those people so that when you perceive any present moment experience, your brain reaches back into those memories and it has those to mediate its implicit decision of what it wants to do or what's important to pay attention to right now or, you know, anything like that. And that can be a really powerful, powerful, a really powerful exercise. 
Yeah, and I think it, you know, it doesn't. Well, in the Buddhist uh, teaching, that's very, very present. Yeah, sure. um, you know, in all those endless, endless lists that exist, uh, where yeah, I, you know, of qualities to develop, like equanimity or loving kindness or concentration or or whatever, um, uh, and ways to approach the development, the actual cultivation of those qualities. Somewhere in there is always uh, have friends, have friends who are cultivating that. Yes, have friends I, who have cultivated that, and it does sound cold to many people. Um, just as you say, it's not meant to be, and I don't think it means you have to abandon everyone you know, you know, yeah. for their mindless, you know, lives. But, yeah. but uh, look at what will help you, and you know, maybe have some new friends as well, and and uh, <laughs> bring forth the elements that are inspiring to you. Uh, yeah. It's kind of amazing, and I'm very curious about your online. Community then, is it something that you you repeat? Are you doing it over and over again? What does yeah. it consist of? Uh-huh. Yeah, we run it. We run it twice a year, um, and people who are in it, you know, are in it for you know longer longer than that in the community aspect of it. And we have um, graduates who have come back to the program, you know, over and over again, and they they serve as mentors in the program. Mm-hmm. Uh, guys, they've kind of been through it before, uh, and so they can support people and encourage people, you know, along the way and answer questions about, you know, what's the path ahead like, you know, that kind of thing. And then there's co- there's what I call now coaches, um, which are really like um, long-time mindfulness teachers, mm-hmm. typically physicians and therapists actually as well. And, um, and they're there to do really live, smaller um, sessions mm-hmm. with groups, and they also are there to answer any questions personally right within the platform. Um, but what happens over time, what I've noticed is, is that because people meet, you know, regularly and we do it, it, it is a global program. So people meet over Zoom, um, mm-hmm. that, those aspects. But the reason I chose that is because Zoom is, by the way, for those of you who don't know, is a, you know, and I'm not certainly trying to, you know, endorse it or anything like that. <laughs> You know, I have no stake in that company, but the um, <laughs> I already have it. <laughs> yeah, okay. But the uh, but but because you get to see people and hear them, and yeah. I you know I'm of the just practical belief that the more inputs you have for a human being, the more impactful it is for you. In person is obviously the best, and then that would be the next step, and then chatting and texting would be you know at the at the bottom, but better than nothing. Um, and uh, you know, you get to develop relationships with people over time. I've had people who have traveled from LA to Italy to go meet with a person after mm. they kind of had this uh, this relationship with over them, and people start to develop social circles within you know offline as a result of it. And you know, so it's almost like this natural implicit community that starts and connections that start happening. But ultimately, it's that it's it's front of mind for people now because they they are regularly engaging with other people who are inspiring and wanting to do the same thing as them. It also gets you to clean your house, I should say, because as I, when I came into the studio this morning, I said to Lily, who runs these podcasts, I said, oh, I think I have a Zoom session tomorrow. I have to clean my living room because uh-huh, right, exactly. it, is, it is a video. <laughs> you, know. you can always put a screen behind you, right? Yeah, yeah I have one of those I know too. Because I remember interviewing you for a past symposium yeah. or you know, having, that, having that background, right? Yeah, no, it's very, it's very funny. And the, the visual component is so interesting. So you're, you're taking... Um, science or or known the known body of knowledge around habit formation. So things like community um, regularity is it? Yeah, reg- mm-hmm. commit com- guidance, like, uh-huh. you know, really high end guidance. Um, you know, I also noticed that in the in a lot of the, when I was kind of developing this curriculum and all this kind of note this, and you might be you might appreciate this is that 
Um, you know, one of the things that's not taught as much in more of the secular areas of mindfulness is that there are some, and you remember you, you mentioned, you know, some aspects of seven factors of awakening, but uh, the is that um, there's some fundamentals that can really support your mindfulness practice before you actually jump into a mindfulness practice. Mm-hmm. Um, and so learning how to relax your nervous system, mm-hmm. one of those things. Initially, when mindfulness popped out into the secular scene, um, there was a big dichotomy or divide between like, mindfulness and relaxation. And relaxation seemed like, this is not relaxation, you know. Um, mm-hmm. you know and there was a reason it was, it was said that way. But what wasn't said was that um, there's a real benefit to learning how to relax your nervous system for your mindfulness practice. Mm-hmm. And there's also a benefit to learning how to focus and concentrate. Mm-hmm. And they all, these, all, these all support each other. Um, and, uh, and so in the beginning of the program, we really focus on those initial factors of kind of growing and honing the skills of learning how to relax while being awake and focused. Mm-hmm. And then we kind of bump into the mindfulness thing. And this is all to support someone's innate sense of resiliency, to give them the resolve to make the changes they want to make in their lives, to build these fundamental strengths um, that we move on to, which inevitably we realize that, hey, this stuff isn't easy. This is pretty hard to do, and you know, or this can be hard to do. And, um, and so we um, really go deeper into self-compassion and forgiveness um, because that's, that's part of the journey of making the changes we want to make. And to me, it's sort of the trump card mm-hmm. to the inevitable obstacles that come our way. Um, and then we kind of go deeper into kind of joy, you know, like the positive aspects of, of life and learning how to be grateful and appreciative for these while also recognizing the impermanence of them and, um, and then going deeper into deeper compassion. So you get that deeper sense of connection, really seeing um, people who are different from you uh, and being able to um, even can be connected with them and, and uh, even kind of being able to give, uh, we do kind of a secularized version of Tonglin, mm-hmm. you know, and, mm-hmm. and then kind of go inevitably into a greater sense of balance and equanimity. Well, as someone who uh, teaches so much loving kindness practice, Tonglin, by the way, is a Tibetan form of, of loving kindness. Um, yeah. uh, you know, someone who teaches so much loving kindness practice, I really applaud that, you know, because yeah. I think that, um, you know, really what we are asking for in a mindful relationship to an experience is not that easy all of the time, you know, like to be with what is happening without uh, falling into, you know, projecting into the future, without condemning it, without pushing it away, without holding on to it is not that easy. And there are lots of building blocks that maybe we have naturally in our lives because of our own personal conditioning, and maybe we don't have so naturally, and and yet they're available. We actually can train in them so that by the time we are uh, practicing mindfulness, we have those building blocks more in place than we did before. Um, And they even start, you know, classically with uh, generosity, you know, living a certain way so that we, we are happier, we're more uplifted. Uh, generally speaking, practicing generosity, practicing morality or ethics so that we're not so kind of paranoid all the time, you know, or if they find out what I said about them or, you know, that I told that lie. And, and so it's kind of clearing the decks and then building strength so that we actually can be mindful. And these are all core, these are all things you're talking about are correlated with, with current happiness research. Mm-hmm. Too. Um, and so there, you know, it all, a lot of it goes hand in hand. And, you know, I think what you're saying has a lot to say also about what our current environment is, at least mm-hmm. in the United States and maybe globally, um, you know, around the, 
around all the political upheaval that's been mm-hmm, happening. Mm-hmm. And also, like, uh, I'll never, I'll never forget, like, years ago, being in, I used to live in Berkeley and and uh, California, and seeing a bumper sticker on the back of a car that said, "If you're not depressed, you're not paying attention." Yeah, yeah. You remember that one? Okay. Well, people bring it up to me all the time because oh, the, okay. the word happiness is in so many of my book titles, and uh-huh. so I'm, I'm accused of, you know, being too happy. Or, yeah, what's wrong with you? Sir? Yeah, yeah. Um, but you know what? That's missing. I remember seeing that and being like disconcerted and confused by it. I remember saying like, "Okay, well, I get what they're saying, but does that really have to be the case? Do you need to be depressed? And you, if you're in order to if, is it really correlation that you're aware of all the difficulties in the world and challenges and even polit- current political upheaval, and you have to be depressed in order to mm-hmm. maybe wear a depression badge on your on your shirt to say like, look, I'm really informed. Right. Um, you know, and what that's missing is uh, is really the equanimity, mm-hmm. balance, um, the idea that you don't have to be so hooked. You can be aware, but don't have to be so hooked. And you can learn to develop um, compassion for yourself and for other people during these difficult times. And you can learn to develop balance. And and, and that doesn't. And, and, and with that, what oftentimes helps, because to me, the pain on both sides right now is is really apparent. And you know, because there's this huge divide, right? There's pain on both sides. And um, and but what the, the sense of helplessness. Yeah. That people feel is what drives the depression. It's what drives the anger as well. And if you can develop the ability to, your mindfulness practice can really help. I know it helps me quite a bit with this to be able to um, not be so addicted to the stimulation of it, and to be able to uh, to be able to recognize like where can I take action. Right now, mm-hmm. where can I take action? Because then that'll that'll reverse the sense of helplessness that's there, and that's where you can be aware and not depressed. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where it comes into. And also, I think the mindfulness also gives us the ability to have greater perspective. Like, hey, this is happening right now. Um, but you know, I remember a quote by Martin Luther King where he said, "You know, let us realize that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you can ha- deeply hold that. Um, and take action. Um, you know, you uh, uh, you might even feel good about what you're able to kind of bring into our culture in this world. Well, I think you know it's easy uh, to almost glamorize that sense of depression. You know, but the reality is, when we are depressed and we feel shattered, we feel broken, we feel helpless, we feel hopeless. It doesn't yeah. serve anyone else either. You know, so it's not just for the sake of being in a better mood. You know, or or yeah. being more buoyant, but that we need energy from somewhere. We need a sense of wherewithal. We need a sense of um, inner resource. Otherwise, we cannot meet the moment, which is a tough moment uh, to meet. You know, in so many ways, it's like uh, you know, so many people at this point in time come up to me and say, "I cannot bear my own mind anymore. I can't bear how angry I am all the time. You know, I can't stand it." You know, and so. It's not a very onward-leading feeling. Um, you know, it's not that effective for making change uh, when we feel crushed, you know, ourselves. So uh, I think balance is, is really the key. And this too can sound cold to people as though you're withdrawing, but you're really not withdrawing at all. You're just building that that resource so you can do something. And, and what you're not withdrawing is it's the merging of balance and compassion. Mm-hmm. 
So it's 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 that merging, you know, that's there. If you're just overly compassionate, you might you might experience that bumper sticker more. Mm-hmm. Um, and but if you're if you're if you're allowed, if you can merge the sense of balance and compassion, which I think your mindfulness practice can help you do that. I mean, you lead this all the time, and you're you're certainly, you know, the 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 leader in the field around loving kindness in this in the West, and and um, so you know just. A moment for me of deep appreciation and gratitude for the, the incredible work you've done. You can't even possibly even imagine how many mm. lives you've you've changed and touched and generations that follow. Wow, thank um, you. And it's true. And um, and so you know, but but that that and that um, you know, hopefully, what it is is where we we can hold that perspective and understand that we're in this for the long haul. And um, and be able to take compassionate action. That's so great. I just want to ask you because you used the word trauma much earlier in this conversation. If we could go back to that for a moment, because something uh, somebody said to me once in terms of uh, it wasn't necessarily a personal critique of my uh, work or approach to leading meditation, but it was a kind of uh, general. Uh, comment where she said, um, there's always trauma in the room, you know, and, and you have to understand that from the moment you ask some people to close their eyes, perhaps, to meditate, you know, rather than giving them the option of, of keeping them open. And um, So I'm just wondering in terms of an online program uh, how much flexibility there is and how much ability to respond to people's personal needs and so on. It's a great, it's a great question, and, and it, it's the it's at the foundation of of this program. That's why I have so much human being support in the program. Mm-hmm. Like literally, I can't, you know, we we you know we have people who hop on the phone with people. Mm-hmm. We have you know we have you uh, have so many. It, it's it's such a caring and loving and supportive community of real human beings. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, it, when, when I just pause at times to realize the people that are in it and who have been in it for um, the last few years, that because people, again, the graduates that have come back, alumni have come back, you know, and kind of go through the program again because they, the community is so powerful for them. But, um, but people, like, really are there. Uh, and it's not just a, you know, it's just something that people take and uh, are left alone. Like they are part of smaller communities within there. They're part of the larger community, and so yeah, there's definitely outreach, real human outreach that happens. But to to to, to touch on that for a second, aside from the program, I'll never forget one time when I was leading one of my first MBSR programs because again, that was that was uh, in some ways it was John's program that I was kind of brought up in. Mm-hmm. Uh, aside from all the reading I did, you know, before that. And, um, you know, and I was re- bringing people through the body scan and halfway through a woman popped out and ran out of the room. Mm. And, um, it's there where I really realized that, you know, Hey, you know, there's, there's a, a, a real important way to, to use these practices. And some of them can be re-traumatizing mm-hmm. and we have to understand who's in the room with us as best we can and be there to support them. And, and, uh, you know, the, the wrong practice, the wrong time can be um, mm-hmm. hurt somebody. And so, you know, somebody, and I oftentimes teach this because I train a lot of therapists in, in mindfulness. And uh, and, I t- and I talk about, like, you know, you have to understand where if the person is, is currently has the ability 
um, the ego strength to be able to go inward, or if they're going to use their meditation, you know, if they are having a lot of you know emotional activation, we might want to use it in a more outward way. Mm-hmm. Um, we can train their ability to be present by listening to sounds. Mm-hmm. They don't have to go into their body and emotions to do that right mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. That's great. So I'm wondering if you actually can lead us in in some kind of practice or reflection. Sure. You know, um, we we could do we'll do a short practice together, and you know, this will just be a. I think this will touch on a little bit a, a combination of even as we're ending, we'll do a kind of a welcoming, mm. um, and uh, and then maybe we'll end it with um, something that touches on a more compassionate uh, action and leads us in that mm. space because that's a really important space for for us right now as a culture and people, especially you know me, I'm highly aware of being a, a white male in this culture, mm-hmm. um, and my I'll say and I'll be very outward and outspoken about this, that my wife, Stephanie Goldstein, is, you know, to me, one of the greatest inspirations, you know, when it comes to um, me even diving deeper and and around social justice and stuff like that and and, um, (laughs) around my, around my white maleness too. Yeah, that's great. uh, So, okay. So, so everyone just kind of settle in. Let's just take this time. Uh, Of course, if you're driving, um, (laughs) you want to you know, be aware of that and not uh, close your eyes or do anything like that. So, but if you're if you're wanting to keep your eyes open, you're welcome to do that as well. And so we can start off by just taking a couple deep breaths, and maybe this is a moment of transition of release in through the nose, out through the mouth, just initially. Beginning just by being aware maybe that you are in this moment, even practicing with other people or also listening at a similar time to you, so that you're not alone in this practice as you're beginning. And also just being aware of what's here physically, maybe to begin with. Noticing your body here, being aware of the positioning of your body, all the sensations that are alive here, allowing them all to arise within a feeling of being welcome. And also being aware of where you're starting this moment from, because every moment is a new beginning. So you're starting this moment from emotionally. Might be something comfortable there, uncomfortable. Might be a more nuanced feeling. Restless, anxious, calm. Maybe feeling of being uplifted even. Could be neutral. Whatever is being felt, allowing it also to arise with a feeling of being welcome. And all the mental activity that's there, the thoughts, the images that may be pulling you away or just present in this moment, allowing it all to be here, present, within this sense of awareness, allowing it all to rise within a a field of being welcome.
as you're doing this, also, again, expanding your awareness a bit more to be aware of all the other people in your life, your family, your friends, the people you work with, the strangers you meet on the street, the people in our political world on the left, on the right. people in different countries. Be all the people in the world, just settling into that for a moment. For a moment also, being aware of your heart and allowing your heart to be welcome in this moment. And seeing if you can allow this intention to float out to all of the people. May we all find ways to take care of ourselves. May we all find ways to support each other, to understand each other, and lift each other up. May we all, women and men, people of different color, do the challenging work to look inside ourselves and see where we maybe contribute to the issues of this world and also where we can take action to contribute to the inspiration in this world. May we all have the courage to do so. Settling into the deep understanding that you are the one you've been waiting for. And in a moment we'll come to the end of this practice. This final moment of acknowledging yourself for taking this time out of all your daily busyness, which your mind said you would, could, should be doing, and just engaging this, listening to this conversation, engaging this practice for your own learning, health, and well-being. Just acknowledging this as an act of self-care. And so just maybe even just acknowledging yourself for taking this time. Bring awareness to your whole body and your face. If your eyes are closed, gently allowing them to open. And thank you. Well, thank you so much. That was wonderful, and it's been uh, really inspiring to talk to you. And uh, for those listening, I'd say if you want more information about Elisha's many offerings, <laughs> we're all going to sign up for the online course. Um, uh, you can visit online at www.elishagoldstein.com. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more information about Sharon's many offerings and her ongoing teaching schedule, please visit her website at sharonsalzberg.com.